If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 2001, and you were first runner-up of Miss Hawaiian Tropic. Why would you throw that away for a podcast? The movie? Legally Blonde. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by Amy Nicholson, and we are going to break it down today about the Reese Witherspoon classic, Legally Blonde. We do this every single week, looking at some of the best movies ever made and really asking the question, are they that good or do we just remember them that way? Paul, of course, is coming at this from the perspective of being... A brilliant mind, a filmmaker, an actor, a writer, a man who makes, let's say, interesting documentaries that are forthcoming. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, well, hopefully we'll all edit together well. And Amy Nicholson is one of my favorite voices in cinema, a writer, a podcaster, a radio personality. And I've been loving your reviews in the New York Times. You actually made me laugh out loud a couple of weeks ago <gasps> about your review of that um that film based on an ancient chinese legend oh <laughs> uh, are you talking about the monkey king yes yes you actually <laughs> your review of the monkey king really made me laugh out loud uh when you described the lack of research that this movie did about this quote-unquote true story they were telling oh paul Thank you so much. I love the research that goes into my job uh, writing reviews for the New York Times. I got to read Red, White, and Royal Blue to review Red, White, and Royal Blue. That is so much fun if you want to see a really fun romance. Oh, I cannot wait. Well, Amy, I'm coming to you today a little sadder than normal. Well, not normal. I'm not often sad. But um, my dog, my dog Meatball has passed away and... Uh, it was a very traumatic. I'm still in the throes of it, but I will say that watching this movie, this Reese Witherspoon movie last night, 
did make me a little happier. It gave me a little bit more of a laugh. It took my mind off of things. And I'm very thankful to have this movie. And I forget how much I just love a simple, down-the-middle, big-budget comedy that's actually funny and with great performances that's shot on film. Like, I feel like this is a rare beast in our new world. Well, first, I would like to say, pour one out for Sergeant Meatball. Meatball was a heck of a dog. A heck of a dog. I'm glad I got to meet that dog. Yeah. Very wonderful dog. Very Um, sweet. And yeah, agreed. Agreed on giant comedies, which is an awkward segue for what I'm about to say, which is this podcast is coming out just a few days before we're going to be doing a screening of a movie that is not a giant theatrical comedy, unless you really want to laugh at it. And I would kind of love people to laugh at it. Uh, Look, you Uh, heard my theory about it, Amy. That it is a dark comedy? Yes. Yes, it is a dark comedy. Of course, about There Will Be Blood, a film that we recently covered on this podcast as part of our July listeners yelling at us, why have you not covered these movies? You have to cover these movies. We want to see a There Will Be Blood episode. We did. Very fun episode to record, and it's going to be super fun to introduce it at the Arrow on Monday, the 28th. So if you haven't gotten your ticket to see the explosions as big as the sky, the Arrow is a good theater to see that in. Gigantic screen, gigantic palace. And we're going to be there saying hi and introducing the movie. It'll be very, very fun. I'm very excited. We haven't done that uh, since we did RRR. So we only do movies with explosions. But um, I'll tell you this much, Amy, uh, I can make a very strong case to the similarities of There Will Be Blood and Legally Blonde. I should do a Patreon podcast about it because I do think there are similarities. But this movie is truly a movie about a main character with drive, with passion, just like Daniel Plainview. And what I love about it is at a time in 2001 where I think we have a lot of stereotypes about can a movie like this even exist, to 2023 where we're still wrestling with the same kind of ideas. Can a woman be professional and still be feminine? I think this movie shows us the answer is yes, but it's a question that we still are wrestling with. It is. It is. And I think if all of us are checking in with ourselves constantly, stereotyping does not go away after you watch this movie, but this movie helps you acknowledge it. And I will say this. While this movie has some brilliant things. They do miss a couple of moments here where stereotyping comes in or the lack of representation comes in. We'll talk about that, uh, you know, all the way from, I think, the genius portrayal of Victor Garber in this film to, I think, the, you know, performances that get a little bit more dicey because they're falling to the exact trap that we're trying to say, don't put Elle Woods in. So, we're going to be wrestling with a lot of big issues in this episode. It's a fun one. I didn't expect us to go in all the different directions that we did go in. But I think it just speaks to why this movie 23 years later is still at the top of people's minds and especially at the top of people's minds after Barbie. I'm excited. Let's do it. I think what you mean to say is like from a curler of a lock of hair, let's unspool it or uncurl it. Curl it. The year is 2001, and Reese Witherspoon is a young actress in an uncomfortable position. She's done a string of fun indies and teen movies, The Man in the Moon, Pleasantville, Fear, Freeway, Cruel Intentions, and critics have started to take notice. But 
male studio executives think of her as her character in election, Tracy Flick, the uptight girl who can't play nice with the cool guys, you know, like them. They think that Reese is, as Reese herself puts it, a shrew, which is how the 23-year-old new mom has found herself in the awkward place of having to dress herself up and go to MGM to convince a bunch of men that she is sexy enough to play a sorority girl named Elle Woods. Reese was never a sorority girl. She was actually pre-med at Stanford when acting took over and she dropped out of school. And coincidentally, that is not so different from the woman who inspired Elle Woods, the writer Lauren Brown, who dropped out of Stanford Law School to write the book, Legally Blonde, which Lauren had to self-publish, but hey, now is going to be a movie, the directing debut of 27-year-old Australian Robert Lukedic. It is the story of a blonde who loves her dog, Bruiser, and her boyfriend, Warner. She loves her sorority, she loves the color pink, and she loves the happy future she sees ahead of her. Until Warner dumps her for looking, well, ignorant. He's a future senator, and he needs to be with someone who looks smarter. To prove him wrong, Elle gets herself into law school and falls in love again for real with a new an ambitious version of herself. Legally Blonde was released on July 13th, 2001. It was a huge, huge hit that not only made back its budget by almost eight times, it transformed Reese from a cult star into a megastar. Now, Reese very much calls her own shots and she calls out things openly, like when she had to do that act sexy or else you unbangable shrew audition. Uh, Legally Blonde itself went on to have a sequel, a spinoff, a musical. Now, over two decades later, there are continuing persistent rumors of a third proper sequel. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend of July 13th? Believe it or not, it was a song about a man dumping a woman because she looks ignorant. Not because she is ignorant, she just looks like another girl who is ignorant enough to cheat on him, and this guy cannot handle the resemblance. It is Usher, and you remind me. Oh, Paul, that song is such a banger. I love that song so much. I love that song, but I mean, that shows me that Usher is a warner. Yeah, Usher's like, there are things in this life I cannot tolerate. You know, sorority girls who cheat on me. Well, I got to say, you referenced earlier that Legally Bond 3, there's rumors of it. But I believe it's coming out because I feel like I had an audition for Legally Bond 3. Could that be right? Really? Wait, is it possible you could audition for things and not even know? It is something that is definitely coming. Like, it is it is ready to go. Uh, it's written by uh, Dan Gore and Mindy Kaling, right? It may have been delayed by all this uh, strike or COVID thing, but I think right after the COVID, there were parts that were out for audition. I mean, they announced that this movie was going to be out in 2020, and then they announced this movie is going to be out in 2022. I will, I guess, literally believe it when I see it. Well, 
Isn't it crazy that in 2023, we were talking about a movie that came out in 2001 because when I grew up, sequels used to come out back to back to back. But now we're in this world where movies are coming out and then decades later, sequels are happening. I mean, you look at Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible. These movies have really become part of the tapestry. It only used to be James Bond, but James Bond would change. Here we're talking about the same characters, but really an evolution of the characters, not just kind of keeping them in one spot. You're right. It's like, I feel like when I grew up, sequels were back to back to back to back, Halloween's or Friday the 13th, that kind of movie, but not Heat 2. Yeah. I mean, look at Indiana Jones. We're still making sequels. I mean, I don't know how many more, but this is a summer of legacy sequels. I know we're not here to talk about Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonder, which I did watch for this podcast. We're here to talk about the original. Let's get into the sequels in a little bit. But Amy, I have to say, rewatching this movie, I was kind of blown away by how simple and perfect this movie was in the sense that they don't make really straight ahead comedies like this anymore. Very like boom, 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 like by the book at, you know, minute 20, we're out of act one. One of those just down the middle, easy to swallow comedies. Yeah, I was really surprised watching this. You know, it's been so long since I've seen it, but I have seen Barbie several times this summer. Having Barbie in my head, going back and watching Legally Blonde, which is why I wanted to watch it again in the first place. I think I told you that when I was seeing Barbie for the second time, there was a line of girls in the bathroom and they were like, I haven't felt like this since I saw Legally Blonde. And I thought, oh, okay, we need to do Legally Blonde. I mean, if that's like this benchmark, yes, absolutely. And then having that film in my head and going into this, I'm like, oh, this even opens kind of like Barbie. Barbie opens up singing about pink. You're walking around. You're seeing all her friends getting ready for their day. And here we kind of have the same number with the Perfect Day song. You even get this like first glimpse of our blonde heroine from her feet sliding into those like heart-shaped mules with her perfect little pointed toes. And let alone the number of times that like this franchise just straight up calls Elle Barbie. Yep, she arrives at Harvard and they're like, Malibu Barbie. This is our new house for the next three years. Oh, are you thirsty? Okay, let's get you some water. <gasps> Sweetheart, you just look parched. Hey Brad, check out Malibu Barbie. Where's the beach, honey? In the sequel, which you just saw, she shows up at the White House and they're like, Barbie. Hello, Patriots. I don't think I've been this excited since Gucci became a publicly traded company. Oh, my God. It's capital Barbie. I mean, she is Barbie. She was our representation of a human Barbie before Barbie became Barbie. She was just the Barbie who also became lawyer Barbie. Well, now we're looking at Barbie like Barbie is a hero. Right. Barbie is the biggest grossing film that Warner Brothers has ever done domestically. But in 2001, you know, Barbie is someone that you kind of turn your nose up at. You know, we aren't into Barbie. We're into Tomb Raider. We're into Carrie Ann Moss in leather fighting people in the Matrix. Right. It's a different time. And what makes this movie really interesting is that we have a main character that 
often is the butt of all the jokes in comedies as the lead. And she's completely subverting that image, but at the same time, not subverting herself. Well, yeah, right. And I feel like this has been a problem that has been ongoing. This like conflation of strong female character with just a woman with biceps beating people up. And you're like, no, a strong female character can also just be a compelling, dynamic character who is female. And this is a character who is like completely female. One of the most like female creations that has ever been on screen. Being girly, liking pink, liking fashion, liking doing her hair, not having to punch anybody in the face to prove that she should be taken seriously. We're in this world where if we meet a cool girl... We'll have to wait until a transformation happens, and then she lets down her hair, takes off her glasses, and then becomes hot. But we can accept her as hot because we know her as cool, right? It's like, oh, she can also be hot. We can't meet her as hot. And what you just described about the opening is we meet her as hot. Like, she is judged by her cover at every step of the way in this film. And I think that that's really interesting because you would maybe expect a movie like this to do the reverse. She's hot, and then she becomes nerdy. You know, she puts her hair up. She dyes her hair. But what makes this movie so interesting, and I think this is why it exists and why you are overhearing in girls' bathrooms people talking about Legally Blonde, is because this is post-new wave feminism in a way. Like, you don't have to change. You can be who you are. You can be what you want to be and still succeed. You don't have to make yourself into something that you're not. I mean, I hope so. But when I think about this time, I feel very lost. I didn't even realize this until I started talking about it. 2001 is the year that I dyed my hair from blonde to brown to try to see if I was taken more seriously. I think I also wanted to see if I would look better with brown hair because I like had this dream of like, what if I'm one of those people who has like brown hair and blue eyes and that's such a cool combination. But what happened is I ended up being a person with like brown hair, blonde eyebrows that looked freakish and blue eyes. And then when I would draw eyebrows on, I looked doubly freakish and it just didn't work for me at all. But yeah, like to me, this was a time when either the cool girls that I thought were cool in the 90s, you know, the kind of like riot girl, punk rock types were being overtaken by the pop idols and the kind of dubious ways that like pop idol girl culture was like reflected in movies. You know, my friend and I, my friend Ernest and I were actually having this conversation where we were like debating when actual decades happen, right? Like are the 90s actually just from like 90 to 99 or 91 to 2000, if you count like that, or are they something more niche? Like are they like 91 when Nirvana and grunge culture took over to 98 when like pop idols took over and that kind of becomes the proto Y2K movement that then like goes on and forth, you know? So it was maybe, maybe the nineties that I idolized were really short. And so like this happens in that kind of time period where to me, like girly things were taking over, but girly things were not respected. The studio thought that they're going to be making a movie that was like wet t-shirts and boobs. And I guess related to that, I had a weird thought watching this where I was like, Oh, wait a second. I think of Elle as kind of like this representation of like a young millennial. But if I'm doing the math, she's actually a Generation X person who's like a millennial icon. Kind of like what we were talking about with Clueless. That Cher technically by her age in Clueless is Gen X. She's baby Gen X. I'm baby Gen X. I identify with this very strongly. Elle is basically the same age. 
So Elle is also baby Gen Xer, but I think she becomes this like icon of like millennial girl pop. But I guess what we're talking about is there's an L for every generation. Clueless comes out in 95. Then five years later, Legally Blonde comes out. Then about five or six years after that, House Bunny comes out, right? There are these... House Bunny did not start a generation. Okay, fair point. I mean, it did make about $70 million and Clueless made double that. It did prove that people are still into this type of story, which is, you know... It was written by the same team. Oh, it was. Interesting. Well, I think that 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 version that you're talking about, a little bit dirtier version, is House Bunny. House Bunny has a little bit more of an edge to it. I think that's maybe some of the happy Madison of it. Because this movie that we just watched, Legally Blonde, I think was going to be a little bit more gross out, a little bit more adult. When I read an oral history about it, they talked about how the original script was hard R. And I think that that got people on board with making it. Yeah, that they were like, oh, it's more American Pie. Like, I think, like, Elle was going to start dating her professor. Yes. That there wasn't, like, the Paulette character at all. You know, the the Jennifer Coolidge from the nail salon, it was more just, like, raunchy and who is she going to wind up dating? And then I think this movie starts to kind of morph and change. And I think that is because Reese Witherspoon is incredibly smart and comes from an independent film background and gets her hands in this script and in this character and starts to make this something a little bit more worthwhile. Well, yeah, I think like they were anticipating things that the audience wanted that then in test screenings, the audiences were like, we don't want that. You know, like the, the, the first cut of this, I think, ended up with their big high point was that, you know, Elwin's her law case. And then she starts making out with Luke Wilson Ta-da, happy ending. And when they showed that cut to test audiences, they were like, we don't care about who she winds up with. We care about her self-actualization. And they're like, right. oh, 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 okay. And so then they had to like rewrite this graduation speech ending where we get to see that she graduates top of her class and gets the respect of her classroom. And the audiences were like, we want that, not a love story. Just so you know, that ending, the graduation ending, everyone in wigs. Everyone is in wigs because Luke Wilson's shooting a Royal Tenenbaums at the time. He has shaved his head. He's in a wig. Uh, Reese Witherspoon is shooting, I forget what film, but she's shooting a movie in London. She's wearing a wig. So I love watching that last scene, just looking at the fake hair. And you can see it a little bit. Wait, have you ever seen that clip from Fallon where Fallon accuses... Apologies for bringing this name to the podcast. I like it to be a safe space, as pure of this as we can. Uh, Donald Trump of plagiarizing Elle's graduation speech when he had yes. to give a graduation speech. Yes. Oh, okay. We Let's just play a little bit of that. Sorry for bringing that voice into this, but it is really funny. I watched Trump's commencement speech, and it sounded kind of familiar. I think it actually reminded me of Elle Wood's speech from Legally Blonde. <laughs> See if you can tell what I mean. We take our next steps into the world. You must go forth into the world. It is with passion. Passion. Courage of conviction. Courage in your convictions. And most importantly. Most importantly. Have faith in yourself. Be true to yourself. We did it! I did it. I mean, I love the idea that, like, he had no idea what to say and had to steal it all from a film. Well, let me ask you this, because we are kind of dancing around it. And we talked about this with Scott Ackerman. Um, a while ago. Is this the movie that Romy and Michelle 
wanted to be and I think succeeded in being, but people weren't ready for it yet? I could see that. I mean, Romy and Michelle, I think, never become brilliant, but they do get to have fun. It'd be sort of liked, sort of, for who they are. Well, I think that they embrace themselves and they're not self-conscious about trying. Like, they try to fit in and then they realize that they just have to be themselves. Where this film, what I love about this film, just from the point of view of why I think it has staying power, is we meet Elle and from day one, to the end of the film, she is exactly the same. There is no true arc to Elle. And I mean that in actually a very positive way. It's not like she doesn't study. She has the brains. She's winning the case because she's Elle, not because she studied a lot of legal mumbo jumbo. Yeah, she's winning the case because she comes to the case with feminine knowledge that not everybody else would have. How perms work, you know? how to build trust with like your your client that you're representing. But in that way where she is, she is who she is and the world changes around her. I was thinking watching this, oh, Elle is like proto Paddington. She shows <laughs> up, she's charming. And people are like, that's a weird thing in this neighborhood. And she's like, it's cool. And they're like, you know, it is kind of cool. I like bears in this neighborhood and I like blondes in this college. Well, I would argue that that's probably the weakest part of the film is that no one else really has a character unless they are affected by L. L helps every character. The characters only exist for L to lift up. But we have that in plenty of movies that are led by men. I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, they should have changed that. But it's interesting that most of the characters are pretty one note. Um, and she has a fix for each one of them. I mean, that's fair. I think a lot of that is sort of in there for us to notice what we think about how the characters are acting. Like in this watch, the one that kind of stuck me was when things are going kind of rough for her at school. She's pretty new there. It's hard. She's not sure what she's doing. She calls her friends asking for moral support and her friends little care about her, but at the same time kind of aren't listening and also kind of don't care. Guess what I'm doing right this second. I don't know. What? Uh, I'm picking out my wedding dress. What? Josh proposed. <laughs> Did you get the rock yet? Um, almost. Well, hurry up so you can come home. We miss you. Uh, I miss you guys, too. The people here are so vile. Hardly anybody speaks to me unless... Oh, I'm my God. I almost forgot to tell you. What? I got fangs. My hair's so now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so just listen. To me. And I mean, that's out here just for us to notice. Like, Elle is never like, my friends are really superficial. She never really comments on it at all. You can just tell that she's hurt. And we can kind of layer that on to their friendship. But then they do show up and kind of cheer for her. And they're like, ah, she's doing her case. But you know what? I think her bonds and what they show throughout the film is the bond of sorority sister is the strongest bond. Because no matter what, they will be there to support. You have a character, Ellie Larder, who is on trial for murder. And the reason why Elle is sympathetic to her at first is because they're sorority sisters. And there's a code of being a sorority sister that they have. She will not betray her. She will fight for her. What it's kind of showing is, yes, those characters may be self-centered, but they will show up for their friend. They won't abandon her. No one abandons her. 
in this movie, except for the douchey guy, the guy who, and no offense to this actor, but there was a time in this era, and I still think we can exist in this, where this face, whatever the face of that guy is, Warner, was the face of what a like an attractive man was. It's so funny how, like, it's just guy, white guy. Like, do you, do you feel that? Like, or were you like, oh, this guy's a cute guy. I just, I look at him and I go, I see Mark Blucas. I see the leads of so many movies where it was just like white guy, not too intimidating, not too masculine, not too feminine, but just like meat and potatoes, white guy. Yeah, a Ken. He, I mean, he has that face that I think we've even talked about in a previous episode where he's almost the kind of guy that male studio executives think is what women like. Yes. And women are like, no, we like Adrian Brody. We like weirdo guys. And like, no, 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 you like this Ken kind of guy over here, right? He's got enough muscles. He's handsome. And like the idea that I think a lot of studio bosses have never quite understood the type of male actor that women go nuts for, that we want a, a Hugh Grant. You know, we don't like somebody who's quirky and strange and memorable. The yes, way they like girls now this... just go nuts still for like Adam Driver and Benedict Cumberbatch. Like it takes women to make those actors happen in a lot of ways. I mean, that Lena Dunham basically was like, Adam Driver's hot. Women are going to know this guy's hot. We're casting this guy. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. What makes this movie interesting and speaking to that is the characters around Elle are all really interesting except for her ex-boyfriend, right? Everybody pops in some way. Uh, I mean, Luke Wilson, I know it's been said a bunch, is pretty much just doing Jimmy Stewart and really in Legally Blonde too. Like, it's off the charts. You know, it's really like, <laughs> why are you even here? But I like Luke Wilson in this movie and he is fun and interesting. Do you think Legally Blonde too is just like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but with these guys? I have such an issue with Legally Blonde too. Um, I mean, that movie got terrible reviews. I watched it right after watching Legally Blonde 1. And it's a movie that to me feels afraid. Afraid of trying to do something different. And they just recreate Legally Blonde. They take her out of law school and they put her on Capitol Hill. It's the same thing. Once she gets to this point, it's hard to like knock somebody backwards. And I feel like that's what sequels always fall into. It's like, it's a sitcom problem. Like sitcoms are great for the most part when it's not something like The Bear, which is probably not even a sitcom, but a half hour where the characters just kind of revert back to who they were. I've been on those sitcoms. I love those sitcoms, but it's like, you can't have any forward momentum. They have to be the same character just to catch up with Elle and find her in this spot where we got to knock her down a peg, but the, she still has support. It just, I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't work. What I find interesting about Legally Blonde, which I like, 
and I think is a great movie, but I'm going to poke one hole in it, is Elle doesn't want to be judged by her cover, right? Which is Barbie. But yet, we judge pretty much everybody else in this movie by their cover. And I would say the most clear example of that is the pool cleaner, right? Like, it's like, oh, he's gay. We'll just reveal him for being gay. And that's it. And he is a liar and he's duplicitous. It's a weird energy for a movie that's like, don't judge me by my cover, but everybody else is judged by their cover. I am not arguing that in the slightest. Yeah, that scene makes people in like the year of our Lord 2023 be like, ooh, okay, okay. All right, Elle, well, sure. It, it's weird when you watch movies that are inconsistent or still learning how to talk about the things they find difficult to talk about because it does that scene pretty wrong. But then it does scenes like when she gets like sexually harassed really right and in a way that feels kind of progressive for this time, that instead of being the version of the script where she's going to get into a relationship with her professor, he's going to hit on her like here. Well, you know what competition's really about, don't you? It's about ferocity, carnage, balancing human intelligence with animal diligence, mm -hmm. knowing exactly what you want and how far you'll go to get it. How far will Elle go? Are you hitting on me? You're a beautiful girl. <laughs> so everything you just said? I'm a man who knows what he wants. And I'm a law student who just realized her professor is a pathetic asshole. Too bad. I thought you were a law student who wanted to be a lawyer. And then what the movie does that I really respect is it shows how the crisis of that situation isn't just like that actual situation. She gets out of it. She like yells at him. She's mad. But how situations like that undermine her own self-confidence, like the emotional repercussions of that are what matter. And I find that really amazing. It's not like kind of an 80s version where he hits on her. She emerges from the room with like her hair all messed up and sobbing and like her, a button ripped. It's like the way it chips away at your own view of who you are and how that kind of damage lingers with you, which you really hear in her voice here. All people see when they look at me is blonde hair and big boobs. No one's ever gonna take me seriously. People at law school don't, Warner doesn't. I don't even think my own parents take me seriously. It just felt like for the first time that someone expected me to to do something more with my life than just become a Victoria's Secret model. Then I was just kidding myself. Callahan never saw me as a lawyer. He just saw me as a piece of ass. Just like everybody else. Turns out I am a joke. No, you're not a joke. Just brush this ring the hell with law school. I just wanted to say goodbye. If you're going to let one stupid prick ruin your life, you're not the girl I thought you were. So that's smart. But yeah, it does a dumb thing and then a smart thing and then a dumb well, thing and a smart thing. I think that we come across this at all points. And this is why 
it's easy to fall into jokes and stereotypes, especially in movies of the past where people are a little bit less aware of certain things because it's a joke. It's a joke, right? And so where this movie is coming from is like, oh, you've made fun of blondes for a long time. Why don't we turn that on its head? But in doing so, they also have to make easy jokes. And it comes because it's, yeah, nuance is hard. Nuance isn't as funny as a very simple joke that happens in that courtroom. You know, the gay lover, why is he also in the courtroom watching his boyfriend testify and lie? Like, whatever. She's never judgmental. It's not like she's judging him because he's gay, but she knows how to use his gayness against him. But I do think they do a really great nuance performance with Reese because you talked about that sexual harassment scene. And that scene is really interesting because she's never dumb. She's not surprised by things, right? She's aware of things. And that idea of we contain multitudes is something that we come back to time and time again. You know, we we have a tendency across the board to stereotype many things. The way I just stereotyped those types of 90s guys or 2000s guys. like, And I feel like it's really hard to have a, a lens or a palette where you can actually show that this character can be everything and they can be smart. Like, yes, she got in the 0.1% of the LSATs because she right, studied. LSATs top out at 180. You know, so yeah. you get a 179. If she puts her mind to something, she can achieve it. And I feel like she can also be the person who wants a boyfriend back. She originally goes to find self-worth with her boyfriend, right? He doesn't want me because I'm not smart. And then she finds out that, like, I want to be this for me and nobody else. And maybe that is the arc of the character. And I might have done her dirty by saying there was no arc, but I do think what I was so impressed with was she doesn't have to change. Her want slightly changes, but you give her a task at the beginning of the movie or at the end of the movie, she's the same person who will get that task. Yeah. Let's listen to that breakup scene, actually, because I, I think it's yeah, a little brutal. Like, I really like how Reese plays this just completely devastated. What? Well, I've been thinking about it, and I think it's the right thing to do. You're breaking up with me? I thought you were proposing. Proposing? <laughs> oh, if I'm going to be a senator... Well, I need to marry a Jackie, not a Marilyn. <laughs> so you're breaking up with me because I'm too blonde? No, that's not entirely true. Then what? My boobs are too big? And it's funny because like this happens at a point in the movie where you've already seen her get stereotyped against. You know, to even be on this date with him, she's gone shopping. She's gone shopping to like a boutique and the sales girl has tried to rip her off because the sales girl thinks she's stupid. There's nothing I love more than a dumb blonde with daddy's plastic. I mean, he gets excited when he Did you see this one? We just got it in yesterday. Oh, is this low viscosity rayon? Uh, yes, of course. With a half loop top stitching on the hem? Absolutely. It's one of a kind. Hmm. It's impossible to use a half loop top stitching on low viscosity rayon. It would snag the fabric. And you didn't just get it in. I saw it in the June book a year ago. So if you're trying to sell it to me for full price, you picked the wrong girl. And so in that moment already with the sales girl, we know that she's a person who knows her stuff. 
and is not afraid to just sort of say what she knows when she feels like she's being treated like she's an idiot. But then she sort of just smiles and carries on. She's not like, I will then seek vengeance upon you. We learn that she's a person who sort of just like gets wounded, moves on, everything rolls off of her. And I do kind of relate to that idea of being a person who's like in college, about to graduate, and you feel like you understand what your future is supposed to be, right? And you're just like, well, that's what it's supposed to be. Because it's a really insecure time of your life because you know you're supposed to take this giant step, go out and go forth. I remember feeling this obligation a little bit because of like 80s movies and stuff that you're supposed to fall in love with your high school boyfriend and make it work forever. And if that one doesn't work, you have to fall in love with like your college boyfriend and make that one work forever because like those are the big love stories because you watch a lot of teen movies and that's when people are falling in love and like going to the next generation. And I remember like graduating college and being like asking my boyfriend, like, should we move to the same town? But we wanted to move to different towns. You know, he wanted to go to the Bay. I wanted to go to L.A. And just feeling this pressure of like, am I supposed to make this work because we're supposed to be in this relationship? You know, like you're kind of clinging almost to a future like a life preserver. Did you not ever feel that? I definitely felt that. absolutely. You felt like you partner up with somebody in high school or college and that would be it. That's where you meet your person and then you have to make your lives work together. And I think that that is something that's going further and further uh, by the wayside. So I do think that you're right. Like this movie also plays into that idea that Elle hasn't even explored herself enough to know what she really wants. And I think what the movie does is opens her up to, yes, she can still be smart and still want things and still be successful, but she doesn't have to be in that small of a box. But I do think the reason why this movie continues to be successful is because society will continue to constrain women and put them in a box. Like, for example, like there's a whole thing and I'm going to misquote this, but you'll get the idea of it. Like Capitol Hill, like there are dress codes that women have to hit, right? Like if you are wearing a dress, you have to have your shoulders covered. Uh, You know, uh, if you're wearing slacks, you have to wear a jacket. Yeah. I don't even think women were allowed to wear pants in the Senate floor until like the 90s. I might even be wrong about that, but yeah. There was a whole article. Yeah, in the Missouri House of Representatives, there was this whole idea that they wanted to tighten the dress code for female legislators, right? She wanted to require women to wear a blazer, you know, and Democrats called it ridiculous, but Ann Kelly, a Republican, uh, was the one who sponsored that bill. And this idea that women's arms must be concealed, that was one of the things that they're fighting against, Right. That is insane. Anyway, I think that there is this big thing. And it, it yes, I think it definitely affects women. And I think that women have this uh, battle they have to contend with. So the government did this long term study. They do them they, where they sort of just index all of this information about people and kind of follow it throughout the decades. Um, so they call those like NLS studies, National Longitudinal Studies. Um, and in part of those studies, where they do them a lot on people in the military because they can like test military people over and over again. They tested the IQs of the people in the military and they found out this one scientist that of the entire population, blonde women have the highest IQ by 0.5 IQ points, which is basically negligible. You know, like when you look at the numbers to be blonde has given a lot of women an advantage. Like 35% of our female senators are blonde. Again, 
Blondes are only 4% of the population. Natural blondes are only 4% of the population. But 35% of our female senators are blonde. 48% of the female CEOs who run Fortune uh, 500 companies, they are blonde. Fox News, of course, is over 50% blonde. So dyeing your hair blonde, what they say is that it gives you an advantage because the men around you assume that you're nicer that they think blonde women are kinder to them when blonde women have ambitions or criticize them. They don't take it as personally. But when brunette women do the same things, they think of them as like mean and bitchy. That said, (laughs) brunette women tend to get higher paychecks because they're seen as smarter. So when they're like competing for jobs, they offer brunette women more money right out of the gate than they do blonde women. And then the last thing I found out, was that they did a study in 2007 in Paris where they showed men pictures of women and then gave the men themselves just general aptitude tests, you know, like regular smart things. And they found out that after showing men pictures of blonde women, the men did worse on these general aptitude tests. And the only explanation they could come up with is that men subconsciously react to stereotypes and adjust themselves to be dumber when they've thought of blonde women. I don't really understand this. I think they're kind of making it up. But they said it's kind of like how when you see an older person, you have a tendency to revert to the stereotype of talking really slow and talking really loud. And so they think that men make themselves seem a little friendlier and dumber around blonde women because they assume that we're dumber. I don't understand that either. I buy that. It's like do the you way buy that? You talk. I buy that people do that. Yeah, absolutely. You don't talk to a child the same way you talk to an adult. And I think that that a blonde has a stereotypical view that I could see that people change their whole demeanor because it is viewed as as somebody who, who needs to be spoken to that way. Like, I don't agree <laughs> with that. I'm just saying, but I, I buy that 100% like ingrained in us. I mean, I will say, I, I have to give a shout out to my, to my beloved aunt, my darling aunt, my Aunt A.B., who's from the side of my family where all the women are blonde or redheaded. She recently dyed her hair blonde. She's still blonde in her late 60s because she felt weird walking around in public still being a natural blonde. So she tried to dye her hair gray last year and her whole hair turned green. And she recently just told me this and I had to make so much fun of her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm watching so much Survivor. I may have talked about it on the show already because I'm obsessed with it. I just watched Mike White's season, which is phenomenal. I have wanted to see that so bad. I heard that was You will love it. It's It's a brilliant season. But one of the characters on the show, actually two women on the show, were talking about how they were portrayed. And Jeff Probst brought this up. He said, look, if a man played the same game as you, they would be applauded as one of the best players in the game. But when women do the same moves that men do, they're judged more harshly. And... I see that. I see that on the show because the show Survivor is really base. It's great. It's super smart. But it's about social strategy. It's about strength. It's about how can you navigate an incredibly tough situation. And I think that when we see a woman not acting feminine or doing something that is aggressive, they can be labeled as being unfair or unkind. And you see a little bit of that in this movie in the sense that when L wants to take over the case, Victor Garber, who, by the way, they said that uh, George W. Bush was the, the the role model that they picked for Victor Garber, like that kind of energy, which I think actually he plays great. I love Victor Garber. And I love the way that he is not super lecherous. Like 
yes, he's revealed to be a creep, but that's more the creep that you're going to run into than like the sweaty guy. Like, who? Hey, hey, nice butt lady. You know, it's like, yeah, he's I not like, like double taking on her. Goes long. He's yes. like, he waits until they're alone to be unprofessional. And maybe and, nobody will ever believe her. Right. And, you know, he's holding something over her. He's basically actively trying to stop her from getting ahead just because she rejected him. Right. Just because she rejected him. Uh, now, all of a sudden, She's on the outs. Yeah. And part of what kind of breaks my heart about his character here is like he's been treated with all of this like respect and esteem. And he is treated that respect and esteem, even up into the scene where we're like hearing about Brooke's case for the first time, where just he's straight up like, yeah, my client's probably guilty. We're defending Brooke Wyndham, whose very wealthy husband was found shot to death in their Beacon Hill mansion. Gold digger? You'd think so, since the stiff was 60, but... She was rich on her own, some kind of fitness empire. You can buy her exercise tapes on infomercials. And his point of view is just seen as such a default one to be taken so seriously that, like, even the other women in the room are mostly going along with it. You know, we hear, like, the Selma character, Vivian, be like, yeah, she's a gold digger. You know, because, like, we're adapting to the construction of the universe as seen through this male character who's just calm and dominant and sounds really reasonable. So even when he's like, my client's probably guilty for no reason, everyone's like, yeah, she probably is. And this is why I think the movie is so interesting because we just talked about that scene in the court with the pool boy. The pool boy who's wearing like a thong and even Ali Larder's like, yeah, I like him in a thong, right? So Right. There's a yeah. lot of things like, right. But she's also like, nobody in my sorority would ever like have sex with a guy who wore that thong. Well, I mean, yeah, again, but that's also like a weird, like a, a weird judging the book by its cover. So you have something that's really broad and stereotypical there. But then you have something that's a lot more subversive, which is just a subtle sexual politics of the workplace. Like you just described. He's not mustache twirly in that. It's when you hear it, I think the instinct is for the audience to agree, like, yeah, okay, yeah, she, she was holding the gun. Of course she did it. Like, you know, he's not like, she's blonde, so she did it. It's a little bit more elevated. Exactly. Like, the movie allows the subtle sexism in this film, some of it, to creep up on you. Some of it's very, like, avert, hey, hey, Malibu Barbie. But then there's his. Like, because we're probably attuned to it, like, we start seeing things like the way he's always asking Vivian to get plum sauce and coffee. And at the beginning, we're kind of like, ha ha, yeah, Vivian, fuck you, Vivian. Right, Go we don't get that like man. Vivian, yeah. We don't like Vivian, so it's okay that she's being treated like, you know, a ninny. But in the first scene where we start to see her reach out to Elle, you know, in a friendship level, woman to woman, like, actually being open, actually, like, bonding and forming a kind of sisterhood, then we're like, Oh, yeah. You you shouldn't have to get that man's coffee. Did you ever notice how Callahan never asks Warner to bring him his coffee? I mean, he's asked me at least ten times. Well, men are helpless. You know that. I know. Warner doesn't even do his own laundry. I know. He has to have it sent out. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Did you know when he first applied? He got waitlisted. What? His father had to make a call. You're kidding. (laughs) No way. And then they kind of get to bond over what a ninny their her boyfriend and her ex is. Which I've been there. Are you I don't were you ever like friends with any of your friends, like currents or exes where you're like, oh yeah, they never do like pick up their socks. 
So um, it goes. No, I don't think that I've ever had that conversation. I kind of am a big believer in like a sacred space there. I don't like the overlap. I like some overlap. I like the idea that we all live in kind of one extended, long, complicated Russian book. <laughs> but that said, like, isn't that scene, though, with with Sama and Reese lovely? Like, it's yeah. a really human scene. And I love how Sama Blair plays it. I mean, these people had already worked together, of course, in, like, Cruel Intention. So they had that chemistry that comes from, you know, God, that movie is so fun. Oh, my Do gosh. Love I love that movie. Oh, that's really, like, a favorite of mine. I mean, this movie also, we're talking about casting of this movie. It could have gone in so many different directions. I think when you look back on it right now, everyone's like, we were 100% on board with Reese Witherspoon from minute one. You already have poked holes in that by talking about how hard it was for her to get the film. So many people have said that they auditioned for it, they were thought for it. Um, but all these characters, it could have gone in such weird directions. I don't know. I do think that Selma Blair is really perfectly cast. And I do think that you get something from the two of them. Like once they are bonded, there's a real camaraderie there that I I buy. And, and that's one of the other endings was that the two of them are on a beach in Hawaii, like toasting. And people didn't like the ending of that because they thought, oh, it looks like they're gay. Yeah. Um, or that, and there was like kind of a related part of it where like now Selma had dyed her hair blonde because she oh, was right. like being blonde is cool, too. They went so far as to even film that scene, I think, because like yeah. recently Reese Witherspoon put a bunch of pictures on the Internet. And like one of them was this photo where like she's hanging out with Selma on the set and Selma's got this little blonde page boy. Seeing Selma with blonde hair is so creepy. She's like just the most beautiful brunette of all time. I don't think they trusted their instincts to feel like a fulfilling end is just watching a character be confident in themselves. I mean, there was a musical number. There was a boyfriend moment. There was this dying hair blonde moment. They're like, well, we need to end it big. We need to end it big. And they didn't realize or didn't trust. And that's the studio side, everybody, that it's enough to see somebody be happy. Yeah, that it's enough to see that character get the respect that she has earned because she studies her heart out. You know, she really studies her heart out to pass that test. It's not just complete magic. And then it does sort of make a joke about like the Harvard admissions people who seem to be talking slowly enough that it you sense that they're very distracted by how hot she is in her bikini and trying to come up with like arguments for why she counts as a diversity candidate, which is very funny. And that's why you should vote for me. Elle Woods, future lawyer for the class of 2004. She does have a 4.0 from CULA, and she got a 179 on her LSATs. A fashion major? Well, sir, we've never had one before, and aren't we always looking for diversity? Her list of extracurricular activities is impressive. She was in a Ricky Martin video. Clearly, she's interested in music. She also designed a line of faux fur panties for her sorority's charity project. Uh-huh, she's a friend to the animals as well as a philanthropist. And that also just feels like so relevant in this summer where, you know, the Supreme Court is trying to roll back like the level playing field for people getting into schools like Harvard. I mean, the other thing that we can argue here in this movie is even though Elle is smart and good and incredibly capable, she's in rare air. She's rich. She's right? very rich. And Harvard is a rich school and she's surrounded by rich people. And this movie 
the only time we get to see something that's not rich is really Jennifer Coolidge, right? I mean, we don't even really get to see anyone who's not white in this movie. Yes, the judge at the end is not white. But the only time when, like, non-white people pop up in this movie is inexplicably in that nail salon when a dance scene happens. I'm like, oh, wait, where are all these black people before? (laughs) What? Like, great dance number, but that's weird. That is true. Yeah, even Harvard seems, like, more white than my imagination of what Harvard is. It's tricky because when you are talking about a marginalized community, and that's what this movie is. It's like blondes are marginalized. They don't really like open that up to a bigger worldview. I mean, it is hard to be like poor blondes. Although it's funny, like the New York Times had a big article the, like a couple of months ago about blondness. I think the gist was just like talking about blondness as, you know, being considered like worthy or necessary. And all of the comments, because I like to read the comments on the New York Times, it's really a sickness that I have. All the comments were like, I am a natural blonde and my whole life has been hell of people calling me dumb and like being very upset and like being blonde has been a curse. And like, I've also tried to dry my hair brown, which, you know, as I sort of did. Um, And it talking about like how much it hurt them to hear blonde jokes their whole life. And I was reading this wondering if I could relate to it at all, but actually feeling like I didn't relate to it. I didn't. I didn't hear a lot of dumb blonde jokes growing up. I wonder if it was more of a thing in like the 50s, 60s, 70s than it was in like the 90s. I don't know. I went on like a whole tear of like blonde research for this episode. Do you want to hear some blonde facts that I learned? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start with this. Like the very first dumb blonde of history uh, comes from the 1700s in France. There was this like courtesan. Her name was Rosalie Duthay. She had been in a French convent and then she quit that to become like a ballet dancer and a mistress. She is a creepy historical story. One of the future kings of France lost his virginity to her when he was 15 and she was 40. And so somebody in the court wrote this like one act satire about her and how she talked really slowly and it really hurt her feelings. And so she offered to kiss anybody who would do something to restore her honor. But nobody did. Um, So that was like the first historical dumb blonde that became like a stereotype that was written down. And of course, by the 60s and stuff, this is like really ingrained, like Dolly Parton. You can hear Dolly Parton here. Like she had a song called Dumb Blonde. This is her introducing it on on the show. I'll play a clip of her introducing it in like the awkward jokes and then the song itself. <laughs> Dolly, you you also have recorded another song recently and and it's a beautiful song. Why don't you go sing Dumb Blonde? Uh Dolly. I mean, no, I mean I don't Do think what? that uh Dumb uh no, that's not the way I should put it. Uh wait a minute now. I'll think of it. Dolly Parton recorded a song called Dumb Blonde. Yeah. She is about to sing it for you. Thank right you, Dolly. Now, Dolly. Like Dolly Parton, I've heard is one of the things that really bonded Reese Witherspoon and like the costume and hair department on set that they were showed up and they were just all like, we love Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton became such a signature because she to me, Dolly is one of the representations of being like unabashedly female. I'm going to have my blonde hair. I'm going to have like my big boobs. I'm going to have my pink and sparkles and I'm going to write great songs and you're going to love me anyways. And everything's fine. Well, I mean, Um, Dolly Parton is 
the epitome of figuring out how to do it all and be her own person. I, I'm I'm blown away by Dolly. I mean, I've heard the rumor that I don't know if this is true, but that you know that she's covered in tattoos. That's why she always see her in long sleeves because she just <laughs> knows how to like kind of hide up that stuff. I also say that maybe that bond with uh, Reese and the costume department really helped because uh, she did get to keep all of her costumes after filming. 77 pairs of Jimmy Choo's, 60 outfits. Um, and she did that not because she wanted it, but she wanted to avoid that the wardrobe was going to be sold at auction. Because she's like, it bothers me. Imagine some sicko in Wisconsin smelling the seams. It, it creeps me out. <laughs> Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Well, I don't want to bypass one thing that we talked about a little bit earlier, which is Jennifer Coolidge. And we would not be doing this movie justice if we did not talk about the dance in this movie. I mean, this is truly the bend and snap is, I think, one of the major set pieces of this film. Elle Wood says it has a 98% success rate of getting a man's attention. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge recently on a podcast said uh, never has that worked for her in real life. Uh, the thing that I found out that was so interesting about this bend and snap was they decided to add this little dance number here. They needed to do something, right? Uh, at the midpoint of the film, they were going to have the um, nail salon get robbed. They decided against that. They went in this direction instead. And they brought in Tony Basil to choreograph this amazing number. The number that I did just rip on just a little while ago. But it is a fun number. It is well done. And Jennifer Coolidge to this day is forever mortified <laughs> that she could not get this choreography. She said, where Reese Witherspoon picked it up immediately, she could not get it at all. And and she said, that's my character. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. So let me, let me go. Let me just do it my way. Uh, and you can see that in that scene where everybody is doing the bend and snap, Coolidge is doing more of like a bend and, and push. I think the bend and push really works for Coolidge. I think oh, the bend yeah. and push makes a little more sense than a snap. If you're talking yeah, for Coolidge. I agree. Yeah. What but do you I think about like, the bend and snap? I don't quite understand why or how the T-Rex arms work in it. I don't understand the point of like, I've got short little arms. I don't know. <laughs> but but maybe I'm just short-sighted and maybe I don't have a 98% success rate at getting people's attention. But I love like the dynamic between uh, the Paulette character and the L character. I love that they just like bond together and become each other's friends. And like that like her, they find support in each other and that you really see how as Elle is basically learning how to think differently, learning how to speak differently, the way that she's been warned, you know, that this is how a legal education will retrain your brain. A legal education means you will learn to speak in a new language. 
you will be taught to achieve insight into the world around you and to sharply question what you know. When we see her put that into action on Paulette's behalf, when we see this blonde woman who's been really underestimated use her new language to help speak up for a woman who cannot speak up for herself when they go to like her ex-boyfriend's house right. and they get back her dog, I find that really beautiful because it is just pure friendship. I'm Elle Woods, Miss Bonifante's attorney. And I'm here to discuss the legal situation at hand. Come again? Do you understand what subject matter jurisdiction is? No. I didn't think so. Well, due to habeas corpus, you and Miss Bonifante had a common law marriage, which heretofore entitles her to what is legally referred to as equitable division of the assets. Come again? Due to the fact that you've retained this residence, uh, Miss Bonifante is entitled to full canine property ownership and will be enforcing said ownership right now. Hmm? Huh? Tell him, Paulette. I'm taking the dog, dumbass. And that is what I like about this film, you know, and the Selma stuff. It's just all of the friendship that is here, that like friendship exists and friendship is worthy of being defended. And I think that that threat of female friendship gets underestimated in movies time and time and time again. And I like that that is here. And also it's kind of playing alongside a political conversation I find really interesting, which is like one of the cases they're talking about when they're even in law school is about sperm. All we do right now is argue the rights of like women in their own bodies. And here, at least in this film, they're arguing that kind of thing, but about men and about men's sperms and kind of turning that lens around on them. Although Mr. Huntington makes an excellent point, I have to wonder if the defendant kept a thorough record of every sperm emission made throughout his life. Interesting. Why do you ask? Well, unless the defendant attempted to contact every single one-night stand to determine if a child resulted in those unions, he has no parental claim over this child whatsoever. Why now? Why this sperm? I see your point. And for that matter, all masturbatory emissions where his sperm was clearly not seeking an egg could be termed reckless abandonment. I believe you've just won your case. And I do want to just answer your question about the the chicken wings. You know, why are they, why are they there? And they are there because of the writers of this movie. Uh, you know, somebody we haven't really spoken about yet. Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith, they have made many uh, big, giant, popular films uh, but 10 things I hate about you. She's the man. And then they also turned teamed up with like Lukatic on a film that to me was so bad that it killed the rom-com for a really long time, which is the ugly truth. Oh man. Right. I forgot about yeah. That. But they came up with this because like I said, they were trying to get this, uh, robbery scene done and they couldn't figure it out. And they're like, well, what if we, you know, help her get the attention of the UPS driver. So they're kind of drunk at this bar in a hotel. And one of them starts, acting it out and they and they and they do it and they bring it into the producer mark platt and he's like oh i love this let's do a dance number they bring it to robert lucetic and he's like i love it let's bring in tony basil tony basil brings it in they bring the uh writers to tony basil and her dance studio and they're like that's great 
but more more chicken arms, more chicken arms in it. So the writers uh, here really are responsible for the chicken arms because it was their original intent. So, uh, you know, it doesn't always have to make sense dancing, uh, but it just has to look good. And like, this is a movie where everybody is on the same page, which is, this is Elle's movie. And in an L movie, there could be a dance number and it would be totally fine. And there could be all of these things. I feel like everyone was working, not looking at L, but looking through L's eyes about what she would want to do. So the comedy, I think, would play to someone like L in the audience. I think that's true. And it kind of made me want to go back and look at the legacy of this because we talked about the films around this era the clueless era but it also made me want to go back and look at like a maryland film you know to look at gentlemen prefer blondes or something because i know that we did some like it hot which to me is not at all my favorite maryland film but like the l woods of this movie is to me of the legacy of maryland here i am i am cute i know what i want i'm going after it you will like me you will like me by my sheer moxie and you will respect that I know how to get this done. I think the closest film really that captures the energy of Barbie and Legally Blonde, I think there's two that come to mind. Elf and Enchanted. Oh yeah, Enchanted. I love Enchanted. And I may even I may even say, as I'm saying that, what about Barb and Star? Oh yeah, Barb and Star. Barb and Star is a little different, I think, but Elf, Enchanted, Legally Blonde, they all share this idea that you can be who you are and still be successful and you're not dependent on a man. And I'm going to say that with Elf because I think there's a part of Elf where he's dependent on Santa and he learns to be not dependent on Santa or the, I should say, the respect of the other elves, right? He's trying to fit in with the other elves. He doesn't fit in with the other elves. And he learns how to kind of take what is special about him and then put it in another world. There's something interesting about that. I can write my thesis paper on that later. I mean, it's not even that different from the Ken argument inside of Barbie, too. You know, that Ken has to figure out who Ken is. It's easy to watch this movie and be like, yes, we should all learn to be nicer to Elle. And now I'm about to say something that I have to make sure I explain this correctly. Okay. There are still people in this world that we feel very fine making fun of. The Paris Hiltons of the world. And maybe it's fine to make fun of a Paris Hilton too. You know, Paris Hilton has mocked herself plenty. But we still do wrestle with this idea of who to respect and how much. And I was thinking that one of the people who has really put the mantle of I am Elle Woods on herself, please respect me, is Kim Kardashian, who has been going through her own crusade to be a lawyer. She's been going through this public crusade of working on trying to pass her bar exam and people asking her, well, here in this interview, why do you want to be a lawyer? Why are you doing this? People are just so surprised to hear it. Talk about the reason. Yeah, well, you know, when I did go to the White House and when I learned so much about the system and what is going on deep into the system, I was honestly so surprised. I really had no idea how broken the system is. And I just figured if I know more about the system, I can do more for the system. And that's just the type of person that I am. It it really interests me. It's completely taken over my life. She said in another interview later, she said, this is her quote, no one has ever really respected a reality star with a sex tape. 
And I've always had to break through this stigma and I want to prove to myself that I can do it. And ultimately, this is a huge fuck you to everybody who thought that I can't grow or move beyond where I was. And to that extent, Kim herself has even made an exact replica of the Elle Woods video essay, which you can listen to. This is Kim talking here. Oh, hi, I'm Elle Woods. And for my admissions essay, I'm going to tell all of you at Harvard why I'm going to be an amazing lawyer. And I am so torn on this because part of me wants to be like, Kim's a billionaire and she's so vapid and hasn't she destroyed our culture? But then I'm like, in the back of my head, I would assume that she's not smart. But honestly, she must have been pretty smart to do everything she's done. Right? I think that media can pigeonhole people very quickly. And it's very hard to get out of the box that you are in. And that's with actors. That's with writers. That's with really everybody because we just need to go You're this, we got it, put you in a box. You're this, we got it, put it in the box. I think that now as social media has like gone on, you can start to show other sides of your life. Now, some people just continue to show the same side. And because of that, they have a harder time getting out, you know, but people are more interested in showing that they have more than what you think they are. And I think that Kim Kardashian is a perfect example of that. The reason why we keep on watching Kim Kardashian is because she is ever evolving. People are always going to judge her one way or the other, but if you actually watch, you pay attention, you will find out. And this is, we're always going to be guilty of judging a book by its cover because there's too much. There's too much. I see a movie poster. I'm like, I know what that is. It's a trailer. I got it. You know? And the truth is you don't got it until you see it because sometimes you can be surprised and, and marketing and all this sort of stuff appeals to the base interest of all of us. It takes everybody to work really hard to show themselves off in a different way. Media is always giving us the easy way to identify something. And I think that when people try to turn out of it, and we've seen that in very big ways, like Jim Carrey and Robin Williams, when they try to do something more dramatic, like, no, hell no, fuck you. You're the funny guy who talks out of his butt, or you're the crazy guy. Like, it's hard to digest. So, You know, hopefully we're getting more open to it, but I think we're always going to be judging a book by its cover. And it's on us as individuals to continue to educate people. Hey, if you stick around, I might surprise you. You know, I wonder if there's a correlation between our impatience to give things more than a few seconds of our attention and just the rise of the internet and getting so much information shoved in your house, in your brain at all times. You know, that it was like we'd get People Magazine or Entertainment Weekly or Rolling Stone and we kind of flip through that and catch up on entertainment news. But now when there's kind of no stop to facts about all your friends, facts about movies, facts about things just like jamming into you, we can't deal with it. And so we just need like, what's the one sentence? I like, don't like, that's stupid. Here's my take. And we just want to get in and out of an idea as fast as we can so that we can, because there's too many coming at us. There's a great article that was written by a filmmaker. I think he wrote the Gal Gadot movie that was on Netflix. I'm not positive. He wrote an action movie that was on Netflix. And he had an original opening to the film. And it was a slow-paced scene of driving. He was told, or at least he tells the story, by his Netflix executives that he needed to have an action scene in the first two minutes or people would turn it off because they're not going to sit through it. And that to me is really fascinating, right? Because we are basically saying, yes, I'm putting this on, but I'm giving you two minutes 
to show me that this action movie I want to watch is actually an action movie. And it does put us at a, a supreme disadvantage when we can't even lay in what characters are. Like this movie here, this opening, this patient opening that you described, the music, watching the letter go under the door, mm-hmm. the dog gets it to her. Like we are taking our time. We're in, you know, we're embracing this thing. People might say now, like, well, it's not, where's the jokes? We need more jokes in this. This feels like a girly movie. This doesn't feel like a comedy, like change it. And when you bought a ticket to see a film or when you were watching commercial television, you had a little bit more patience because there wasn't a million other things. So you think you're and right. I think we you are. You weren't going to like go to a movie theater, buy a ticket, sit down and in two minutes be like, nope, I'm, I'm out. I'm out yeah. of here. Yeah. We don't reward commitment anymore. We don't reward that because there's something else always. I mean, I want to believe that like we will not live in a there must be an action scene in the first 90 seconds thing forever because we're robbing ourselves of even great reveals like in here, like the re- the reveal of the movie star from the feet to the top, you know? The creation of a movie star, because to me, Legally Blonde is special for being the absolute public coronation of Reese Witherspoon as a major movie star. And I do feel, as I've said here on this podcast, that we're not building new movie stars. We're not taking the time to build new movie stars. We don't need to because we have too many movies. We can't even get attached to people because the next thing is happening. Like, I don't know if you're going to see a sequel to a movie that comes out in 2023 in 20. 46. I love the idea of slowing down. I think that that is also why this summer we have seen so much similarity in the blockbusters. Like if you look at Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny, Fast 10, and Mission Impossible, you can see similar set pieces, similar locations um, happening in each one of those films to a point where you're like, have we dumbed it down from the studio side that we are so committed to. This is going to work. This is not going to work. So we're making the same movie three times. It comes out a week apart from each other. And then when you look at like the two movies that are the biggest hits, Barbie and Oppenheimer, they're completely not that. Um, Or are we not allowing ourselves the ability to think a little bit more critically and, and, and get in and dig in so we don't have three movies, three giant movies, some even made by the same studio that have similar set pieces. Like that, to me, blew my mind. It blew my mind, too. If we can't even get the new ideas within the franchises that we keep rebooting, we can't even get new ideas in like the cross franchises that are coming out in the same I'm like, month. yeah, I'm like, give me, like if this came out in a year, if if Dial of Destiny came out a year later and like, oh, they ripped that off from this or, oh, they took that. Like, no, these movies are coming out weeks apart and they are the same things. It And it's unfortunate to each one of the films because it makes those set pieces kind of boring because we've already seen them. Yeah. And it, to me, it, like, it was the hardest on Dial of Destiny because I was like, Mission Impossible at least was going to do the best train sequence they could in the world. Absolutely. And you just can't live up to that with Dial of Destiny. It's just like, just uh, they they can never own trains again this summer. Trains are done. Trains are over this right. summer. So what are we saying here? I think that Legally Blonde is a great, fun, big movie with a giant comedy character that is actually realized more than some other characters that are equally big. Right. Uh, They really she really does have so much to say and do 
And I think that that's really interesting. And on our list, we don't have anything like that. And I think that if we were to talk about, does this movie belong on our list? I mean, we talked about Pee Wee Herman as being one of those movies. Is this movie better than Pee Wee's Big Adventure? I don't know. Like, But maybe there is something to be said for, and I know I argued against this for There Will Be Blood, like, oh, it's just a character piece. But I think this is more than just a character piece. I don't think this is just a showcase for Reese Witherspoon. I think this is actually an amazing example of everyone kind of coalescing and making one really interesting vision. Yeah. I mean, to me, it just says like, what if between 2001 and 2023, we had made like at least two movies like this every year, given $18 million to some fun ass, strange, interesting movie, maybe starring like a female character like this and just made a big fun female comedy. Cause I feel like we just spaced them out so rarely and always got surprised. And like you put the money in, you get the money out. They put the money into this, they got the money out. Like it, it they put the money into bridesmaids, they got the money out. Like it's just, it's never been a surprise. But you got to wait five years. Yeah. You got to wait five years until it goes. And I think one of the biggest crimes is not being able to see Barb and Star in a theater with people. I love that movie. That movie is hilarious. That movie in a theater would have been one of the most epic experiences ever. It would have been like Step Brothers, right? Like I remember just going bananas seeing that movie in the theater. But you look at it and we we talked about them. Clueless, Mean Girls, Bridesmaids, Sex in the City, even. I put Sex in the City in this category. Sex in the City, I think a movie that comes out in 2008 that I think shares a lot of DNA with Legally Blonde. I mean, Sex in the City as a franchise does. Carrie Bradshaw is L. On some level, right? Like, you know, she's not hiding who she wants to be. She's living in the city. We have all these different representations of women. Kim Cattrall is not that. You know, we see that movie is a huge hit. And the reason why is because it's it's showing you can kind of have it all. What Elle is to the women of 2001 is what, you know, Sex and the City is to women that are of the same age of Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall and Cynthia Nixon and Kristen Davis. I mean, I do have to say that I think Elle Woods is a better lawyer than Carrie Bradshaw is a writer. Well, that's, you know, that's a, uh, hey, look, you're the writer, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take it there. Um, <laughs> let's say, take it to the Discord, people. Talk about this movie. Does it belong on the list for all the reasons that we talked about? And we talked about a lot of things and a lot of cultural things about this movie. And also, if you have a theory about why Legally 2 didn't work, I'd love to know. Uh, besides it just repeating the same beats over and over again, why didn't that work? We wanted more. Maybe we expected more. I don't know. But Amy, this has been really fun. And it gets me thinking about all these movies and these franchises and why they stick around and what they have done to our culture. And I know we talked about how, you know, this started in 2001. And we also talked about like they're coming out with a sequel, you know, hopefully in the next year or so. Maybe we should try to do another version of this, like a, 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 a movie that started a while ago, has grown with us. And we still are going back to the well of. So Can I put an idea yeah, out there? Sure. We've got some buddies to do a podcast called Light the Fuse. Love Light the Fuse podcast. Amazing podcast. You can guess from the title, if y'all haven't listened to Light the Fuse, that they do Mission Impossible. I feel like we should summon those guys, Light the Fuse, and get the money to talk about Mission Impossible. What do you think about that? I love that. And I would love to talk about Mission Impossible with them. I've already been on their show, which is great. Um, I would love to talk to you about it as well, because I've just watched all seven Mission Impossibles in the last uh, two or three weeks. Wow. And I got a lot of thoughts on them. Okay. And I will say 
that for the longest time, I've really been against the Brian De Palma Mission Impossible. <gasps> and and I can't wait to kind of go into why my opinion may or may not have changed in next week's episode. Okay, because what I would want to do is focus on the Brian De Palma one, sort of like we're talking about the franchise starter here with Legally Blonde, and make a case why I think that's my favorite one. Sometimes mm. I say three, but honestly, maybe one. Interesting. Three, I... I have a lot of opinions on the rankings. They're constantly changing. So next week, we will have our special guests, Drew Taylor and Charles Hood, on the show. Uh, but to get ready for it, take a listen to the trailer to Mission Impossible 1. This is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Simple game. Is he serious? Always. It's much worse than you think. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. PG-13. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram, and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash paulshear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.